just did. So yes, let's celebrate him a little bit. Um, Let's pray together this morning. King Jesus, thank you so much for an opportunity this morning to gather together as your bride, as your sons and daughters, as a family. Lord, I pray that the uh, words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. And that as we open your word this morning, that you would um, breathe new life into us, give us revelation, and draw us in closer to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, So, if you did not know, uh, last week Spencer talked about how Dr. D would be teaching this morning. My name is Jordan, and it's so nice to be here with you guys. Not only do I not look like Dr. D, uh, but I also don't preach like Dr. D. So thanks for showing up to not get Dr. D this morning. Uh, If you want to leave, now's your chance. Unfortunately, Dr. D came down with the flu about midway through the week and uh, is not feeling too hot this morning. So please um, send her a message of encouragement. Pray for her. Uh, We will have her teaching again soon. But uh, for this morning, you get me. So thanks for being here. Um, I also have another little announcement that I want to share with you guys uh, about a couple months ago, we had some information in the email about being able to vote for um, folks to be on our first ever advisory board. So that voting has taken place, uh, and we actually had a family meeting to announce those that would be on the board, but have not yet announced that uh, from up here on Sunday morning. So I just wanted to let you all know that our first ever advisory board here at Emmaus Church will be made up of Nia Lewis Lattimore, Paula Armfield, Jordan Albritton and Greg Spencer. Yes, yeah, I'm very excited um, for these folks to um, devote time and energy and um, yeah, just prayerful efforts towards leading and guiding us for the next year or two uh, and wanted to celebrate that with you all this morning. Um, So I will go ahead and dive in. I'm curious, has anyone ever heard of the concept of a baby moon before? Anybody? Baby moon? Okay. Um, For anyone who maybe has experienced pregnancy, it's this idea that you get to go and have fun and enjoy the moment before the chaos comes when you're not going to get any sleep or any rest or anything like that. Uh, So before our first, uh, Spencer and I decided to take advantage of this fun little reason to have a vacation. And um, when examining all the restful, beautiful, tropical places we could go, we landed on a trip to New York City. Um, We don't have to talk about how, you know, walking 12 miles a day, I got varicose veins that I still have from two years ago. That's okay. But um, on that trip, we got to experience something that was really at the top of Spencer's to-do list. It was visiting something by the name of the Museum of Modern Art. Has anybody heard of MoMA before? Okay. I hadn't heard of MoMA, but that's okay. Spencer was really excited about going to the MoMA, MoMA, not sure, um, because of an artist that he really loves by the name of Ellsworth Kelly. Any Ellsworth Kelly fans in the house? One! It's Spencer! 
Okay, I'm going to share with you guys, this is not the exact piece that we saw when we were there, but this, in my mind, is a similar piece of Ellsworth. <laughs> um, sorry if it's a little bit blurry. I picked it out myself. So, uh, for those of you who didn't know, I studied accounting and finance in undergrad, and everything about this picture resonates with my soul. I'm just kidding. So Spencer was really excited about this painter that he, I mean, I, I think we even have some of his art in our house, but I'm genuinely, I'm not sure. So um, there's this piece. It looked a little bit different than this, but it's similar. And um, we went and, you know, we're, we're just taking it all in, right? Spencer's so excited. He's like, you know, documenting it, journaling, just lavishing in this moment. I, on the other hand, I don't know if you guys can tell, but there's like a couple words over here. I walk up and I'm like, okay, there's two rectangles here. <laughs> there's a blue one and there's a red one. And uh, that's about all I can gather from the picture. So let me go read these small words and see what else, you know, Kelly wants me to know about this particular painting. So I do that. Spencer, on the other hand, um, is really encountering the art. He's like sitting in the bench He's staring at it. I mean, I told you guys, the journal, right? Like, he's just, he's lavishing in this encounter with these two rectangles. Um, now, what, <laughs> what I did is I experienced the art. Like, it wasn't wrong, per se. Everything that I mentioned was correct. Two rectangles, one blue, one red. Anyone want to disagree with me? You shouldn't because that's right. Then I, I read the words. That wasn't wrong per se. I mean, they're there to be read, you would think. You know, I, I did some things that weren't wrong, but I didn't really get the point of the art. Spencer, on the other hand, he took advantage of the benches. He focused on what the artist wanted him to experience and encounter in that moment. What I got from that day, I could have easily gotten from Google. It's probably about as much as you guys got right here in this moment. Uh, but what Spencer got from that day, he could only get from sitting in the exhibit. He could only get and receive through that encounter. He experienced not just the art, but the artist and the intentions of the artist, where online I could only see the picture itself. In the gallery, the art did something to him. <clears throat> There's an experience, there's a story behind the art, and there's the aim of the artist that comes to life. Now, I've been told that encounters without visuals, such as reading or books, um, actually even take this engagement a step further. Because where you're not giving something, given something to visualize and see, your brain and your imagination has the chance to wander and explore and create and visualize all on its own. Stories have the capacity to change our brain. I actually read about a research paper where two books were studied and specifically folks that had read those two books to look at outcomes for like beliefs of folks who had ingested that material. Now, I am curious to see in this lovely group of folks we have today who maybe have read some of these books and it will tell me a lot about you and the family that you came from. The first book, I would love to see a show of hands of anyone who has read any of the Harry Potter books. Now, anyone with their hands down is looking around at you, jealous and potentially judgmental, depending on what they were told as a child about the Harry Potter books. So this was one of the books in the study. Uh, the other book in the study was the Twilight books. Anybody read any of the Twilight books? 
Okay, okay. <laughs> We've got some strong feelings about the Twilight books, but that's okay. So with these two books, what was found in the data was after reading just a few chapters of Harry Potter, folks begin to actually believe that they had a greater capacity than the average person to move something just by using their mind. <laughs> Anybody thinking it? Wingardium Leviosa. Anybody? Okay. Can we make something levitate? For the folks who read just a couple of chapters of the Twilight book, they began to actually believe and internalize that their teeth were longer than that of an average person, thus symbolizing a vampire. You guys are laughing, but this was a legitimate research paper. Like, there was actually details, numbers, statistics supporting this evidence. Psychologically, there are two things that stories are proven to actually do to us. The first of which is called transportation, and that's when a reader loses themselves in the story world. Anybody experienced that before? You've been so wrapped up in a story that you actually lose yourself in it. You become kind of captivated and encapsulated by it. The second of which is identification, where a reader takes on the identity or perspective of a story character. In other words, we start to feel the things that are happening to these story characters, and we think that they're happening to us. These are two things that are psychologically proven around this idea of reading and ingesting content. This information was backed up by neuroscientists at the University of Cambridge who studied parts of the brain while people were reading. So as I watched this documentary, folks were like hooked up to this machine that they had like a cap on with all these different thingies that were reading what was happening in their brain uh, and they're reading books and what they found was as you read certain action words on a page, you actually activate the same part of your brain that you, would, that you would activate if you were doing that action yourself. Let me say it a different way. Like, if I were to read the word jump right now, and as you read the word jump right now, the same part of your brain, which is like right around right here, is being activated as if you were actually jumping yourself. Isn't that crazy? That is fascinating to me. They also learn that we feel sadness when we read about someone who's sad. We smile when we read about people who are happy. We even connect with people who aren't real, so these fictional characters, in a way that almost forms like a social surrogate. And it, it makes you feel like the person is real, even when they're not, to the point that it can help you feel less lonely because of this fake fictional character that you somehow have relational connections to. Y'all, that is wild. That is nuts to me what reading can do. Now, some of you are thinking, like, why in the world are we talking about this today? Well, I'm so glad you asked. We are in a sermon series right now called The Great Library, where we are examining what the Bible is and how to read it. The first week we asked, what's the point of this book? Last week, we asked, where did it come from? And this week, we're exploring how it forms us. In other words, what does the Bible do to you? 
This morning, our focus is less about what you're reading, like the content, the background, the context. All of that will be discussed next week as we explore hermeneutics. Uh, This week is more about why you're reading it. In other words, what is your approach? What are your desires, your motivation? What brings you to the text and why? And then what are the implications of that on you as you uh, read the material on the page? According to Barter Research, 78% of Americans own a Bible, but only 9% read it regularly. That's a pretty drastic gap, if you ask me. There's never been a time in in the history of the world where the Bible was as accessible as it is, yet as rarely read as it has ever been in the Western world today. Now, I specify the Western world there because there are still 52 countries where the Bible is either illegal and banned or at least severely restricted. And why would that be so? I guess I want you to ask yourself, like, what are the things in life that we know that are illegal, banned, or severely restricted? Now I want you to ask yourself, why are those things illegal, banned, or severely restricted? Anybody want to shout out an answer? Drugs. Okay, but why? They greatly impact your life. They change you. Any? What? They're dangerous. Good stuff, guys. You are right on cue. I didn't even pay them, you guys. So, these things are banned because they have, they likely are connected to or are a potent substance. They have the ability to severely impact you, to change you, to harm you. Do we see the book in our laps, hopefully not the harm thing, but do we see the book in our laps having the same opportunity to form and shape and change us? Do we see it having the same potency of some of these illegal, perhaps, drugs that came to mind? I hope so, because it is. And this book has a fierce way of impacting and changing us. And we're going to explore that this morning. And yet, in its ability to be easily accessed, shared, and consumed, this book is barely read. Only a fraction of the people who even own it open it on a regular basis. Barna has another um, kind of research study out there right now that talks about how there's a direct correlation between our view of um, God and the importance of that connection and relationship and also seeing the scriptures as a necessary space for cultivating that relationship. In other words, how we view God and how we view the scriptures are directly intertwined in terms of our view of importance and vitality. So, as we aim to practice the way of Jesus together, what does it mean to see this text as a means of formation for us, for it to form us and shape us and mold us into the likeness of Christ? Because that's what we are, family. Little Christs, here to reflect and mirror and image him to the people and world around us. We read things different ways, or at least I do. I don't know about you guys. I have grocery lists and to-do lists, really, like laying all around my house. Is anyone else like that? Some of y'all just got one to-do list, and I envy you. Others of us have to-do lists in every room, and then they never really find each other. 
so they're never ending, praise the Lord. I read those to-do lists differently than I do per se, like the instruction manual that I receive on maybe like a new piece of furniture. Anybody putting things together from Christmas still? Like you got something at Christmas. I got a lovely piece of furniture. I was really excited about it. I opened it up and started reading the instruction manual. Guys, I have never purchased a piece of furniture that you had to drill new holes. Why did the holes not come pre-drilled? Why did I even buy this piece of furniture? I could have just got wood from Lowe's if I was going to drill the holes myself. Anyways, I, I address or I approach those instructions differently than I do my grocery list. And I approach both of those differently than I do maybe reading a bedtime, bedtime story to my little girl. Or the way our Emmaus kids volunteers, shout out to them, are reading stories to our children. Has anybody walked by while they're reading to those kids on a Sunday? I walked by a couple weeks ago and Amanda Mill was reading a story to our elementary age kids and I was captivated. I was like up at the door like what happens next? Because she's incredible. So if you ever need to hear a good story read, you need to just sit under Amanda in that. Uh, But when it comes to this book, there's a difference between reading it in the ways of those three things that I just mentioned and reading it as scripture. The three things that I just mentioned, we're looking at texts on a page here. 66 books, sure, they come from different authors, different backgrounds, different scenarios, but they're still just texts on a page. To read the Bible as scripture is a whole new ballgame. For years, many of us have read this the same way we've read any other book, like reading an encyclopedia or a dictionary, depending on your purpose as you approach it. If it's a seek and find mission, you're going to approach it like a seek and find book. Where can I find my answer here? And because of that, we often walk away uninspired, unchanged, and we probably have a good amount of uncertainties. We're taught that this is supposed to be powerful, but how can we read it day in and day out and nothing happen and nothing change? That prompts questions. It's like there's a chasm between this ancient text and this um, spirit-inspired story that prompts change and forms and shapes us. Has anybody experienced that chasm before? I know I have. I believe that for me, somewhere along the way, I came to the conclusion that my method was more important than my posture. The method that I approached the scriptures with was more important than my posture and how I came to it. I now believe that this is wrong. Though both are important and needed, our posture, which in saying that I'm I'm mentioning or referencing like our motivations, our intentions, our desires, all of that wrapped up in this idea of posture, I believe is what's most important. The definition of scripture is actually sacred writings. And the scriptures actually, uh, in it, you'll see references to the scriptures. You'll never see a verse of the Bible that says, the Bible says, in referring to an earlier part. But you often will see the scriptures say. That's because the writers and authors in this text referred to it as the scriptures as well. Calling the Bible scripture is, in and of itself, a theological statement. And I want to make sure I emphasize that. The language of scriptures in and of itself is a theological statement. 
Instead of the Bible simply being text that we get to import our experience into and be kind of like, okay, me as the reader, I get to come to this with all of my stories, and then I get to read it through my lens and my experience. No, the Bible as Scripture automatically places me as the reader somewhat along the periphery. And what's central to this experience is not me. I'm part of a larger story. I'm part of a larger God story here. Central to this is this spirit-sourced writing that I have the opportunity and privilege and natural position because of the theological statement of Scripture to yield to, to sit under that. I have a quote here by um, Kwame Bediako that I think really articulates this well. Scripture is the authoritative roadmap on our journey of faith, a journey that began before we first believed in Christ. So this journey and roadmap was present before we first became believers. This roadmap reminds us that the journey we're on did not begin at the point when we ourselves received the map. By looking at the map in Scripture, we can see how where we have come from and how we got to where we are. It also points us in the direction we are to take if we are to reach our destination. So Kwame here is reiterating what I just said, that we are not the central focus point. This, this roadmap, this story, this narrative is much larger, much bigger than us. We are a part of it. Praise God. Thank you for your mercy and grace that we get to join into this. But we're not central. And we have to approach this text the same way. Before us, there was a school of writers that were employed by the Holy Spirit to give us these holy scriptures. The divine author, God himself, is sculpting and renewing and forming his church, us, the people, to live into this story. We get to live into it. I'm going to say that again. The divine author, God, is sculpting, he's renewing, he's forming, he's shaping his church, his people, to live into his greater story. The scripture has an intended purpose and goal for us, and it is to shape and form us. So I hope you know that as you open up this text, it has an agenda for your life. It has intentions. It's not just words on a page. It's meant to form and to shape you. I want you to even consider the root word of scripture being script. To read the Bible as scripture requires us to consider that there's a greater divine script that we're a part of. I'd love for us to look now at the words of the psalmist in the opening chapter of the book of Psalms. So this is Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord meditating on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. Amen. The psalmist inspired, was inspired here by God's word, um, actually back to Joshua. In the Old Testament, Joshua um, 
so Moses passed away when he was leading the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity, and Joshua was the next one up to lead. And so God had words to Joshua, specifically in Joshua 1, 1, 8, where he said, study this book of instruction continually, meditate on it day and night. So here the words of the psalmist, I believe, are reflecting on what God had told Joshua back in Joshua 1. Now, this idea of delighting on the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night, to me, feels beautiful. I don't know about you guys. Maybe the day and night part feels a little bit heavy, right? Like, ooh, that's a lot, Lord. Uh, but meditating, delighting, this word meditating specifically, when I think of it, I have an image that comes to mind. Anybody else have an image for meditating? Anybody do yoga in the room? Okay, I want you to raise your hand if you do yoga. This is a class study. Okay, maybe there are six or eight hands raised. Now I would like to know, I'd like for you to raise your hand if you own yoga pants. <laughs> Many more people raise their hand. That's a sermon for a different day, but we at least have proximity to the word meditation. Like we have an idea that comes to mind. For me specifically, I'm thinking of sitting cross-leg on the floor going, hum, meditation, right? That's what I'm imagining. So the Hebrew word for meditate here is actually the word hagah. And it doesn't mean hmm at all. It actually means to roar, to growl, or to groan, which to me feels very opposite of hmm. <laughs> Don't know about you guys. I was captivated by this. I thought, okay, we're supposed to roar, growl, and groan on the word of the Lord. You know, we're just supposed to, yeah, whatever that means is what we're supposed to be doing, right? So, you know, as a good uh, Bible reader, I'm like, Lord, where in the world else did we use this word Haggah and translate it to something else? Like, help me understand what's going on here. The Lord brought me to Isaiah 31, where the word is used to describe a lion standing over its deceased prey. Verse 4 specifically says, A strong young lion stands growling over a sheep it has killed. And that word for growling is the same word Hagah that we're using when we think about meditating on the law, or meditating day and night on the law of the Lord. So, I don't know if anyone's ever seen a lion standing over a sheep that it's just killed, but even that for me was a little bit hard to, to grapple with. So I came to maybe a little bit more of a um, proximal example. Anybody in here have a dog? Okay, a couple people with dogs. Have you ever given your dog one of those like really good juicy bones that you're like, what is the thing still on the bone? I did get it at PetSmart. Is that still flesh? I'm not sure. I hope they painted that coating of deliciousness on there because I don't know what I purchased, but I got this for my dog because it's Christmas. Anybody else done that? Okay, and as your dog is like, oh my goodness, you're unwrapping, you're unwrapping the bone and they're panting and they're excited and they're like jumping up and down and doing flips. This is what happens at least in our house. Sometimes our dog's big so he doesn't flip, but there's excitement there. So as your dog is enjoying that bone, there are sounds that come along with it. And there's a savoring that comes along with it. And there's this um, persona from your dog of like no piece of goodness left behind. 
you know? Like, I'm just going to enjoy it every last bit. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to guard it and it's my bone, you know? That, I think, is a paralleled example to this word of Haggah. So what it looks like for us to meditate on the scriptures in a way that we're savoring it, we're enjoying it, we are... um, Maybe, I was going to say, maybe noises come out. I don't really know how you engage the scriptures. But, but you know what I mean? Like there's this, yes, this is it. This is, mm, no, that's not really it. It's like, ah, you know? <laughs> come on, guys, you got to know. You got to know that's what it is. So, okay, what does it mean for us to meditate on the scriptures this way practically? Maybe you're not going to growl if you growl at a coffee shop. i I'll love it. Please send me a video. But what are some practical steps, especially if we find ourselves in that chasm that I mentioned where it's like, okay, it's an ancient text and supposedly it's supposed to form me, but wow, there's a big gap in between. What do we do now? I have three steps for you here. I do want you to know that I tried my best to make it um, like some sort of acronym. Um, I came up with A-D-E, so I think that that A-E-D, actually, I think that has something to do with a defibrillator, which was not my intention. I tried other words. I even was on thesaurus.com. There just wasn't much there for me. So we're going with A-E-D this morning. Step number one is approach. I've mentioned this up until this point, but I believe that our posture, our motivations, and our desires are very important to us as we meditate on the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying you always have to be in a number one spot as you come to the scriptures. What I am saying is have an awareness of where you're at. What are those motivations? What is it that's prompted you to come and approach the text? And I want you to begin asking the question, why? Uncover it a couple of times. Why, why, why? To be receptive to the scriptures means that we're receiving the words in a way that they become planted in our interior lives. Can we posture ourselves in receptivity towards the scriptures as opposed to just seeking and finding the answers that we want to hear? Today, we often read things scientifically. We examine, we want answers, we often elevate technique over transformation, information over insight, and method over meditation. But the writers and the original readers of the scriptures saw these scriptures first and foremost as a means by which the divine was communicating with us, disclosing and revealing himself to us through the words on the page. So instead of having to approach it as if it's a scientific research paper or an encyclopedia or an answer book, what does it look like to follow in the history and path of the original writers and readers and see it as a means by which the divine is communicating, disclosing, and revealing himself to us? We get so focused on the methodology and getting answers as opposed to seeing it as a gateway to God and what he's doing in the world. Especially in the times that we're in, there's so many details that are being wrestled over, so many questions that are being asked. We forget that this is a gateway into almost like a window to view God's world. He's giving us an, an access point through the scriptures. Now, I mentioned earlier that scripture is theological. 
So if it's a window into God's world, we are coming to this text from an outside perspective, almost like visitors from another land. And the text is giving us a window into God's greater story. So when we think about being outsiders looking in, I want to bring your minds back, maybe if you've seen it, to the movie, to the movie, the chron- or book, for the book people in the room, The Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, I have this beautiful picture, if you didn't know. Um, there's this wardrobe that is supposed to hold clothes, as good wardrobes do. But when it's opened, there is access to a whole new world, to Narnia. And so what if we were to view the scriptures in the same light? As we open it up, yes, there's text here, as a good book has, but it's actually a window into a whole new world that we have the ability to see and explore. But praise God, we're actually not the center point of that story in that world. We just get to see and observe and partake and participate in it. That makes sense? Okay. When we think of hearing God's voice, we often think of big, loud, burning bush encounter, something excessive and elaborate. But what if the scriptures are actually the training ground for us to hear God's voice? What if this is the starting point for us to hear the voice of the Lord through the text on these pages? When we read the scriptures on Sunday morning, we often say, this is the word of the Lord. And you say, I am petitioning that we change that, though that has been used for many years in the church before this time, to say, this is the voice of the Lord. And maybe that will help us remember. Maybe that will help us remember. The second point here for us to um, be able to practically consider is this idea of eating As we meditate on the word, we eat. And what I mean by that is we partake, we ingest. Many times throughout the scriptures, eating uh, the words of the Lord or the scriptures themselves uh, are referenced. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness with food, and he responds to the tempter and says, man cannot live off of bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's in Matthew 4.4. St. John in Revelation 10 actually eats a scroll, the Holy Scriptures. Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2, 8, ate a book. And Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15, 16, ate God's revelation, which would have been similar to our Bible. So it's interesting that we see this pattern in the Scriptures of people eating words and texts and books. What does that mean? Jeremiah 15 says, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. I think of it kind of like simmering and meditating in a way. Has anybody had like the mints from those restaurants? Spencer told me I wasn't allowed to reference Olive Garden here, but I definitely want to reference Olive Garden here because they got the good ones, y'all. You know what I mean? There's the kind that is you like put them in your mouth. You don't even have to chew because it just kind of starts to to dissolve. And you get to sit and simmer and enjoy it. It even turns cold. Isn't that fascinating? There's probably some sort of chemical in there that does that. But that's not the point. I think that eating the scriptures is like letting a very slowly dissolving mint just break apart in your mouth. Melt there. Earlier, we talked about not just reading for information, 
We're reading for transformation. That means we're not just looking for nuggets, but that doesn't mean the nuggets won't surface. And if, if we're talking about eating and digesting the scriptures, then I guess I'm encouraging you, eat the nuggets. Eat them. Let them fill your belly. Take them in. Enjoy them. Simmer on them. I have a um, quote here by a German poet by the name of Rainer, who says, This type of writing requires a reader who does not always remain bent over his pages. He often leans back and closes his eyes over a line his, he's been reading again, and its meaning spreads through his blood. I believe, church, that reading, based on all the statistics that I provided from earlier around what it does to us, what psychologically it creates in us, I believe that reading is a gift. But only if the words are taken inward, if we're able to meditate on them, if we're able to gnaw and chew and enjoy and let them simmer. And I'd even add in like an unhurried delight to sit with it like your dog sits with his bone. And the last thing here um, for our practical steps and what it looks like to meditate on the scripture would be to digest what you found. Another word for digest might be to metabolize. So you've eaten it, sure, But if scripture is a meal, and if meals provide nourishment, not just for good taste and enjoyment, but they actually uh, give the ability to sustain us, to um, provide energy, because our food converts to energy. If you don't believe me, just stop eating and see what happens. Your energy depletes. Energy leads to movement and produces something. You have the ability to take action and to move I believe that scripture does the same thing. It has a goal. As energy is created, it prompts and compels movement or change. This is formation. This is how it forms us. We've approached it. We've eaten it. And now we've digested it. It's compelling. It's moving us somewhere. It's changing and forming and shaping us. I believe, church, that it's possible to come to the Bible in sincerity, responding perhaps to some of the intellectual challenges that it offers, wrestling with our friends and family around some of the topics. Maybe we're looking for moral guidance. Maybe we're looking honestly for a pick-me-up. It's been a rough week. I need my Bible, and, and I think it will provide that. I think we can come in sincerity in all of those postures and not in any way have to deal with a personally revealing God that has a personal design for your life. And that's scary not just scary. Honestly, it's sad. And I feel like I've found myself there so often. Okay, Lord, I'm in front of the text. I'm approaching it. I have these questions. I see that it provides life. I want that pick me up. I want to understand what it's saying. But I haven't opened myself up personally to be revealed to the Lord for him to do a work of formation in me to move me towards the personal agenda that he has for my life. I believe this way of operating, like I just mentioned, is sort of like learning a new belief without having belief. It's an oxymoron. It's like, okay, I want to come and learn all of this information. 
but I actually haven't internalized any of it. It's a cognitive dissonance there. Scripture holds the power to confirm or to challenge or reconfigure some of the beliefs and commitments that we have oriented our lives around. And that just is what it is. We may approach this text on any given day and be totally thrown for a loop from something that we've stood, a pillar we've stood on our whole lives. That means you're doing something right. You're approaching it with an open posture of receptivity for what the Lord wants to do, the way he wants to shape and form and the work he wants to do in you through this text and his words. Within our formation, Scripture plays the role of sculptor, shaping our patterns of thinking, believing, feeling, and acting in this world. So the Scripture is shaping and molding and sculpting us, with the Lord being the, um, the person behind that action. Self-sovereignty, or the rule of self, undergirds our moment today. We like to be autonomous. We like to be the one that's central and in charge. I'm not just speaking to those of us in the church. This is our modern moment, but unfortunately, it is true for us in the church as well. It infiltrates every action and thought process we experience and we encounter. For better or for worse, it's all about me or you or you or you. I believe a great need for us as the church today is to counter this self-sovereignty, specifically by living these holy scriptures from the inside out. Living them, not just reading them, but living them, instead of using them for our own, maybe sincere and even devout, but for our own personal agenda. That's not what they're meant for. That's not how they form and shape us. Because, friends, to be filled with the knowledge of the Bible and to not be washed by it is worse than not knowing it at all. We must be transformed. We must be changed. And I believe that there is a Narnian experience waiting for each of us in the pages of this book. I truly believe that. What may look like a simple piece of furniture... (laughs) is actually a gateway to so much more. It's a gateway to another world. It's beyond what you could have ever imagined, but you have to open it up and see for yourself. You do. So in closing, I'd like to revisit uh, the Luke 24 passage that Gabby eloquently read for us earlier today. I'll reread that for us as well. Luke 24, starting in verse 27. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him to stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. As he sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? If you didn't know, this is the um, story of the Emmaus Road journey. 
of two disciples that are walking and talking uh, right after everything has happened with Jesus. He's been hung on the cross. He's been buried. And now word has gotten out that the tomb is empty. So these disciples are journeying down this road to Emmaus and another guy shows up and he's like, what's going on? You're distraught. You look sad. What's happening? And they're like, dude, did you not hear? Like, listen to all this that's taken place. And so the other guy who actually is Jesus, spoiler alert, um, is is walking alongside of them and helps reveal the scriptures to them, brings passages to light. Um, They have no idea he's Jesus until this moment here in verse 31, when suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized it was him. That says he broke bread with them. But there's a couple of things about this passage that really stand out to me, especially in light of what we've talked about today. The first of which is that their hearts were burning within them. There's this sense of enlightenment and encounter, but their hearts were burning before they recognized Jesus. There was something about the scriptures themselves that touched their hearts. The presentation of the scriptures caused their hearts to burn. In this story, the encounter with Jesus... This feels scary to say, but in this story, the encounter with Jesus wasn't enough on its own. The scriptures had to be explained. It wasn't when Jesus joined them on the journey that suddenly they were experiencing the burning in their hearts. No, it's as he presented the scriptures to them. As the word of God was displayed, their hearts began to burn. Reading the Bible does require our head. It requires a level of understanding. But reading the Bible as scripture requires the heart. It requires our motivations and our desires to be channeled towards that of the Father. We often assume that we have to understand something before the feelings will come. That's been me. I've approached the text with a posture of needing to understand it in order to encounter the Lord. Praise God, this story reveals something else to us. In this example, the burning within took place before the clarity was given. This encounter with the resurrected Lord wasn't signaled by a light show and fireworks, but simply an exposition of the scriptures. And this is a story that we as a church community, as a church body, are named after. I hope you take that to heart, family.